Just a word of background, a reading from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. The first deacons had been ordained in the 7th chapter, 6 and 7. Philip was one of the original seven deacons. Not only did they wait tables and work in the church, Stephen, as you know, preached and was martyred. Philip preached up in uh, Samaria, was conducting a citywide revival meeting, and had the experience of meeting the Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to read that portion of the scripture together in unison, beginning with the 30th verse of the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And here's the sequel. After hearing the story of Jesus, which we just sang about, being witnessed to by Philip, called the evangelist, though first the deacon, the man said, well, what prevents my being baptized then? And Philip said, you may, if you believe with all of your heart. And he said, I do. And they got down out of the chariot, got down into the water, and he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia and is the seed of what is today the Coptic Church in Egypt and in parts of Africa and in the Middle East. All because Philip told this one man the story of Jesus. What an opportunity you and I have to do the same in the world in which we live. My father uh, had a lot of interesting sayings. Sometimes after church on Sunday, when I was growing up, we'd go to Duncan's Cafeteria in downtown Dallas, and uh, my dad at times would say to me and to my brother, a boy, remember, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And then occasionally he would say another phrase, don't bite off more than you can chew. Well, I think I may be doing both, but I really want to put Christmas in its setting. I want to talk about before Christmas and after Christmas. We take the, the Christmas story, the first seven, chapter, the first seven verses of the second chapter, of the book of Luke, and that's sort of it. And we have the manger scene, we have it there, and then Christmas is over, we put the manger scene in the garage or in the closet, or some people may leave it up all year, but uh, we move on. Listen, Christmas was not the end of something or the beginning of something. Christmas was part of the great eternal plan of God from before the foundation of the world. It was a significant event, but some very significant events preceded it, and followed after it. And that's what I want you to, I really want you to get into the feeling of the scripture because 
when we read these words, these words have, have some meaning, and behind the meaning are, are emotions. Don't dehumanize these people. Don't just turn them into, into pages and sentences and words. This is flesh and blood stuff. And we have a tendency to dehumanize people in the scripture. We begin to dehumanize ourselves, and then we'll de dehumanize others. These people cried, and they were tired, and they were afraid, and they were joyful, and they ran the full gamut of all of the emotions uh, that you and I run in our, in our everyday living. Uh, Pablo Casals, the world's greatest cellist, one of the world's greatest musicians, would always tell his students, don't just play the notes, play the music. Don't just read the words and treat them sort of like they're a mathematical book or something. Don't just play the words, play the music. Robert Frost said, uh, you don't go on a tennis court to measure the lines. You go on a tennis court to play tennis. Well, what I want you to do this morning is to let your imagination and your feelings kind of run uh, full and free because some remarkable things happen before Christmas, during, of course, and after Christmas. One of the most remarkable things is how the apostle, uh, the, the, one of the four gospels written by Luke, how it got in the Bible. Luke is a Gentile, the only Gentile author of any of the books in the New Testament. And he was converted in all probability under the ministry of the apostle Paul and then traveled with Paul on those missionary journeys. Now, the Gospel of Luke, he was written by this physician, this Gentile. He also wrote the book of Acts. And the, the Gospel of Luke uh, is, a, is a book of, of stories, more stories than in, than in, the, than in the other Gospels. Uh, he's the only one that tells us the story of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the lost coin, the lost uh, sheep, the lost son, or the prodigal son, the story of Dives and Lazarus. Uh, he, he, he was very sensitive to the emotions of people and what they were feeling and doing. Now, he tells us in, in the first verses of the first chapter, now you can take the Bible and the book rack in front of you, and you can follow along because we're going to kind of jump through a, a, a panoramic study here of what happened before, during, and after Christmas. Now, I don't want you to be just tied to it, but I want you to see the, uh, the headings as we move through it. Page 10, 12 in the Bible in the book rack in front of you are the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, here is a marvelous definition of inspiration, how the Scripture was inspired. These people that wrote the Scripture were not turned into robots and that they're mindless kind of people, sort of like a seance of some sort, and they just put a pen on the paper and just started writing. That's not the way it happened. God used their vocabulary. God used their experiences. God used their insights. He kept them from making any mistakes, but he guided them, utilizing all of the facets of their unique personality. Now, here is Luke, a physician, a scientist, as we would call, in, that, uh, in the first century. Now, this is what he said. Also, let me quickly add that this first paragraph in the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke is considered by Greek scholars as some of the finest Greek writing ever penned by anybody. This was a very intelligent man. And this is what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were there, who were eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, listen to that, he investigated, he asked questions, he interviewed, it's like a doctor would when you go in, he'll ask you questions, he'll make notes on that piece of paper. Well, here's that man writing down all of these things, carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Okay. It seemed also good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus. It's two Greek words. Theos for God. Phileo means love. It means it may be an, been an actual man, a person, or it may have been relative to anybody. It means God lover. Theophilus. Theos. Phileo. God lover. So he's writing to anybody who wants to know God, to know God's love, to know more about God. It may have been this actual person. Now, the Christmas story doesn't begin in the manger. We'll get to the second chapter, first seven verses in a moment. You heard it a lot, sang it a lot during the last week. I want you to see what happened before and some incredible things that happened afterwards that are part of this great panorama because Christmas is more than a manger. It's a lot more than a manger. It's a lot bigger than a manger. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Well, what does that have to do with this story? Well, Zechariah was a priest. He was serving in the temple. And suddenly, he was at the altar of incense. Suddenly, the angel of God came to him. Gabriel came in person. And he was astounded. Now, here's the scientist. Here's the physician. He's interviewing somebody. Well, he no doubt interviewed, interviewed Zechariah. And he said, in so many words, he said, uh, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. I'm giving you a summary of it. You're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. And Zechariah said, well, my wife and I are both old and barren. We've never had children. She's not been able to have children. We're old now and can't. He said, God, he said the word, listen to me, Zachary. God sent me here. I am Gabriel. That makes it very clear. I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And he says, because you doubted me and questioned me, you're not going to be able to speak until the baby's born. And when he's born, you're going to tell him to name him John. So he came out of there, and he was just in a, in a state. He didn't, they didn't know what had happened to him. He came out there, and he couldn't talk, and he kept saying, what happened, what happened? And he tried to use his gestures to tell them something remarkable had happened, and he went home, and I'm sure Elizabeth said, what in the world happened to you in church today? And he couldn't tell her. He couldn't say anything. He, just, he tried to communicate the fact that she was going to have a child. And so when the time of the service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. And in, those, in these days, he has shown us his favor and taken away my disgrace from the people. Okay. That was in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Gabriel got orders from God, said, now it's time to go to Nazareth and talk to Mary. Gabriel said, yes, sir. 
In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin placed to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And she was astounded. You cannot translate it, really. Mary was greatly troubled, it says. Another translation says greatly confused. Another says greatly disturbed at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, let me parenthetically stop right there for just a moment. What I want you to listen for and look for, and I hope you'll go home and read these two chapters. I've read these two chapters through, I don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks, thinking about trying to succinctly communicate to you the incredible nature of what God was doing before, during, and after Christmas. Uh, what you have here are some feelings and emotions and thoughts and fears in juxtaposition to one another. For example, when you read through these first two chapters, here's some of the phrases you'll see recurring over and over and over. Joy, great joy, good news, Savior, marvel, peace, goodwill, praise, blessed, mercy, falling and rising. Listen, listen to those, listen to other words. Fear, troubled, wondering, confused. Hurrying, sword, terrified. That's a picture of life, isn't it? That is the picture of life. Good days, bad days, glad days, sad days. That's the kind of world you and I live in. They're in the same kind of world. I've, I've participated and led in three funerals this week. So we celebrate Christmas, life and joy, happiness. And then I leave, go to preside at a funeral. That's life. I want you to see how God is working through all of these apparent contradictions, incredible things. She said, what, what in the world is this happening to me? I'm terrified. And then she, she just begun to be terrified. <clears throat> you will be with child. His first he said, do not be afraid. <laughs> yeah, don't be afraid. Here, Gabriel has come into your little humble home to this little peasant girl. Gabriel shows up on the scene and he says, greetings, God sent me to talk to you. And she's, and she's not to be afraid. She's not to be surprised. Come on. Let this woman be a person. Little 15, 16, 17-year-old girl. You will be with child. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, his kingdom will never end. How will this be, she said. I'm not married. I, I don't even, I've never had a man. What are you telling me? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. You can underline that. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, Mary said to herself, Elizabeth is my cousin. She's down in Jerusalem or Hebron, a three-day journey. I am going to go see her. So Mary goes down to, to visit Elizabeth. And when they get there, they greet one another, and the baby in their wombs respond, and they, she stays for three months and sings this marvelous song, which I hope you'll go home and read the latter part of the middle part of the first chapter. And they talk, woman talk. I mean, two pregnant women and both miracles. And John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth and the Lamb of God, the Son of God in the womb of Mary. Now, you think that doesn't do something to these two people? And their feelings, their emotions. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And then John the Baptist was born. And then Zechariah was allowed to speak. He tells him to name him John. And this is part of what he says in his marvelous praise song that he says, And you, my child, he's talking to his son, to John, John the Baptist. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And on and on it goes. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert. Then, the verses that we've heard and sung so much in these last couple of weeks, the first seven verses of the second chapter. In the days of Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed, so on and so forth. The shepherds come, the baby is born. That's familiarity. We've just gone through it. You've seen it in pageants on the screens, in your home, music, wherever, in church, of course. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. God says to the angels again, the angels say to the shepherds, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And I want you to put a circle around that word all because that's the message of the whole gospel of Luke. In fact, that's the message of the whole message of Jesus. That's a kernel of it. It's for all the people. Hear that? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And the shepherds, they came to see the baby, and they went back glorifying and praising God for everything they had seen. And then, is that it? Oh, no, that's not it. <clears throat> Apparently, Mary and Joseph were able to move out of the manger, the stable, into a house. You read the second chapter of Matthew, I believe it's the 10th verse, 10th to 14th verse, when the wise men came, it says they went to the house. They had moved in to something so a little better than, than in, a, in a stable. Now, any Jewish boy, first son particularly, there were three things that had to be done. 
And this is what takes place next. And this is, this is incredible. This is part of this Christmas story that gets left out. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he named, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Now there were three things, three requirements for the birth of a son. First one, to be circumcised. To be circumcised on the eighth day. Why did God thousands of years ago say that the circumcision should take place on the eighth day? Well, medical science found out just a few hundred years ago why, and the reason is because at the eighth day in the life of that little boy, his resistance to infection is higher than it ever will be again any day in his life. Long before medicine knew anything about the capability of immunization, God was preparing them to have that baby to live and be resistant to infection because of circumcision. That's why God said the eighth day. Give God credit for being the author of the great physician himself. When the time of their purification occurred, now that was the third thing. The second thing really was that the, kind of a part of this, it was usually done at the same time, they had to give a, what's called a redemption offering, which was for five shekels. And then there was the purification, which took place 40 days after the birth of the baby. When the time of the purification came, according to the law of Moses, which had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What the law required was a young lamb and a young pigeon. But that was expensive. And so there was an accommodation made uh, for the poor, and it was called the offering of the poor, and you didn't have to buy the lamb. You, had to buy, you could just have two young pigeons instead, and that's what they chose to do. Now, I, I just have to insert this here at this point. How did, I don't know the answer to this, but how did Luke find out all this? Well, he tells us. He went back and carefully investigated everybody that was a first-person uh, relation to what was happening to Jesus. I believe, that's his mind. You're not going to find it in the Bible. It's just my belief. I believe Luke sat down with Mary and asked her these questions. Now, it may have happened in uh, Nazareth, or it may have happened in Ephesus, because later, later, tradition says Mary was in Ephesus with John, where John the Apostle lived his last years and pastored the church in Ephesus. And you remember on the cross, Jesus said, John, you're to take care of my mother. He was taking care of her, and we go to Ephesus, and when we go there, they say there's the place where Mary lived and where she died. She may have been in Ephesus, and that's where Luke was with Paul when Paul was in Ephesus for two years and three months. In all probability, try to picture in your mind in some little humble home there in Ephesus, Luke sitting down and saying, Mary, I'm a physician. Tell me how it happened. And she starts telling him and how she felt and how she was afraid, and all of these incredible things. The, the incredible things are just beginning to happen. Okay, the time of the purification came, according to the law. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. 
Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was an old man. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was waiting for the, it says, consolation. That really means the fulfillment of the messianic expectation. And when he was moved by the Spirit, when he went into the temple courts, a picture of this old man. Here comes this couple, this frightened little mother holding that little baby boy, about 40 days old. And he sees them. And suddenly he goes over there to them and Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. He just reached out and took the baby out of Mary's hands. Now can't you imagine what she felt? What is, is this is really this man? What, what's going on here, God? Don't you know she called on the Lord a lot? Don't you know this little 16, 17, 18-year-old girl? Virgin, the baby? And what's happening here? Send Gabriel again. He just took the baby. And he started talking to God, holding the baby in his arms. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He was. Mary's standing there listening. Joseph's standing there wondering. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. Now listen to this. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Way back there, before the church finally accepted the fact that you didn't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Here is Simeon, way back there, 40 days in this world. Jesus is being announced by this man who was a follower of God, talking to him in person. He's going to save us all, Jew and Gentile alike. And for glory to your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said. I believe they more than marveled. I mean, like, whoa, what's happening here? Listen, it gets real, real tough. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, look at this little girl, mother of that little baby, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. What's he going? What's wrong with him? Why is he saying this about this little baby? He's just a few days old, and and he's going to be the responsible, going to be responsible for the falling and rising of many, and to be a sign. There will be spoken against. What's he going to do to make people against him? God, this is your baby. This is your son. What's he going to do to make people angry at him? I don't understand. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, Simeon continued. 
And here, and then he looks at her and says, and the sword will pierce your own soul also. What do you mean? And she's telling Luke this. And she starts crying and starts laughing at the same time. And here they are now, 30 years into the Christian faith and it's spreading all over the world of the day. She said, I can look back now and see what I couldn't see at the time. Oh yes, by him, men rise or fall in relation to their attitude toward him. And he is opposed by some because he came preaching unconditional love and unconditional grace and forgiveness and that we're not saved by the law and we're not saved by good works, we're saved by grace. And the religion people of the day disagreed with him and that disturbed Mary. That was one of the swords that she felt in her heart hearing bad things said about her son, these horrible names that they called him. They accused him of everything in the world but being a child of God and they opposed him, the religious leaders, and she was no doubt wondering why, why if, if, if he's the son of God, why is he being opposed by the religious leaders of the day? And then, talking to Luke, she said, my heart was pierced many times, and then, of course, never like on that day. When they thrust the spear in his side, and one into mine, and he died. And I stood there and watched it. And I also stood with the Christians three days later when he was raised from the dead and I came to see the reason why. The reason why. When Joseph and Mary had done everything acquired by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town in Nazareth. Now one little P.S. that I think you... I'm very interested in your at least getting an, an introduction to continuing. And all this still in the second, first two chapters of Luke. They went up to the Passover every year from Nazareth. They, I mean, from Nazareth, they'd go to Jerusalem and observe the Passover. And the whole community would go, in most instances, unless someone was really sick or couldn't make it. So the whole family would go. They did that every year. And they said that here. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now let, just let your mind wander with mine just a little bit. I don't know that this happened, but I believe it could have happened. When uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus went to Jerusalem, where do you think they stayed? Seems to me it'd be logical they'd stay with Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? And there was John, three months older than Jesus. Did they not play together as little boys? cousins. Didn't they know each other? Can't you picture Mary and Elizabeth standing there and looking at those two little boys pray, playing together and Elizabeth saying, you know, that John, he's just kind of fiery, isn't he? He's just, he's just kind of impetuous, quick. Yeah, and they say, you know, Jesus, and he just, they love each other so much, they get along so well, but they're opposites in a lot of ways. Jesus kind of calmed John down at times. And I believe they, they knew each other, kin to one another. I believe they grew up playing together, worshiping together, 
going to the temple together, going to celebrate the Passover together. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up for the Passover, but they went up to the Passover when he was 12, not just for the Passover, they went up there for a bar mitzvah. And who would have been having a bar mitzvah at the same time if not his cousin John? They were men now. And so, when the celebration was over, it was traditional for the women and the children to go on first and the men to follow a few hours later because the women were a little slower getting started and getting going with the children, and the men would join them. Well, when they left and they got down there, Joseph thought that Jesus was with uh, Mary, and Mary thinking, well, now he's been bar mitzvah, he's, he's an adult, he's a male, he'll come with his father. But I don't know. But he wasn't with them. And they went, they rushed back and wondered what, what in the world, where, where could he be? And where, where did they go? I think they went first to the home of Elizabeth and Zacharias. Where's Jesus? Is he here? No. John, have you seen him? No. Last time I saw him, he was in the temple. So they went to the temple. And when his parents saw him, he was there listening to these rabbis talk, listening. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? And I believe Mary explained to Luke why she was kind of curt. And any of you who are parents and had your child wander off in a store or like one of their children might in the marketplace, and then you're just frantic looking for them, you wonder where are in the world are they, and you find them, and you're so thrilled and happy to find them, that you just pick them up and hug them and you're mad at them at the same time and say, why did you, oh, I love you. Oh, why did you run off? You, this incredible contradiction. And here she is. She's a mother. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And I believe she said to Luke, you know, I just kind of taken some things for granted, maybe. I don't know. I don't know why I said your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. He looked at me. Those marvelous eyes and that tender face, and he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? My father's house is not in Nazareth. It's my father's house. But they did not understand. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Okay. Eighteen years go by. Jesus worked with Joseph in the building business, building with stone, mostly with stone, probably working together to build Sepphoris, which is the capital city being built at that time, just two and a half, three miles from Nazareth. We've been there to see it. The ruins are incredible. Marvelous mosaics, two and three-story buildings, Roman theater, and Jesus and Joseph probably helped build that town. You could see it from Nazareth, and Nazareth could see Sephora. 
He worked with his father. I imagine Mary said to Luke, you know, he, he was a loving person. That he was gentle, everybody liked him. So there were times when I didn't understand him. He'd go off by himself. Sometimes he'd go all the way down to the valley of Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo. He'd go to see Solomon's palace at Har-Megiddo. And he'd go to where Elijah confronted Ahab at Naboth's vineyard. And he'd go down to where the spring of Herod, where Gideon enlisted his 300 to fight the Midianites. And he'd come back, and I could tell he was thinking, thinking he'd go to the synagogue a lot and ask the rabbi to let him have the scrolls, and he'd read, he'd read, and he'd read. Ten years went by, 12 years went by, 15 years went by, about 16 years went by, and something started happening down near Jerusalem. John the Baptist began preaching. And they were just coming from everywhere. They coming from Jerusalem. He was a four-day trip where Jesus was living. But the, the news began to filter back up to Galilee. John the Baptist is preaching, and thousands of people are coming, <clears throat> being baptized. And he's, I can see her looking at Luke saying, I could tell he was more pensive than usual, more prayerful. There'd be some nights he wouldn't come home at all. I'd say, where have you been? He said, I've been praying. And then one day, he said, he walked in and said, Mother, it's time for me to go. And at 30 years of age, he walked down, he sees his cousin John, walked up, said, I want you to baptize me. I said, no, Jesus, I know you. And I know who you are. And I know who I am. And I'm not worthy to even touch your shoes. Jesus said, John, do it. It fulfills our Father, our Heavenly Father's eternal purpose. And that's how his ministry began. And that's how our salvation began. And that's why we can come and sing and praise and thank God for all that happened to bring God's Son not only into the world, but into your life and into mine.